0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network here on New Books in East European Studies. Today, I'm your host, Steven Siegel, and my guest is Professor Marta Dichok, who is the author of Ukraine Calling, a Kaleidoscope from Kromatska Radio. 2016 to 2019, part of the Ukrainian Voices series, published by Columbia University Press and Ibidem in 2021. Thanks, Marta. I'm so glad that you could join us on the podcast today.
1: Oh, it's great to be here, Stephen.
0: So a little bit about Marta Dichok. She is associate professor at the departments of history and political science in Western University, at Western University in Ontario, the fellow at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs, and adjunct professor at the National University of the Kiev Mohila Academy, she was a Wilson Fellow in 2005 six and a Harvard Schlar Fellow in 2011. And among this book, or or with this book, she has also published. Uh, Ukraine's Euromaidan, Broadcasting Through Information Wars with Hromadska Radio by EIR in 2016, Ukraine 20 Years After Independence, Assessments, Perspectives, Challenges, published in 2015, Media, Democracy, and Freedom, The Post-Communist Experience, published by Peter Long in 2009, and The Grand Alliance and Ukrainian Refugees, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2000. She's also uh, published numerous book chapters, and her articles have appeared in many journals, including Europe, Asia Studies, Demokratizatia, and Canadian Slavonic Papers. She has a doctorate from Oxford University, and her research interests are in mass media, memory, migration, and history. She's also um, an active podcaster, so this is the, the great part of our conversation today, and provides expert media commentary around the world, especially on Ukraine. So um, from one radio host or one podcaster to another, I want to ask my first question of you, and that is what motivated you to, to produce this book?
1: Well, this book is like a primary source. I uh, created a radio show called Ukraine Calling mm-hmm. on Hromatsky Radio, which is public radio Ukraine. and. Produced 124 episodes uh, on from the year 2016 through 2019, and radio is ephemeral, and it gets broadcast and then it disappears. And I thought, oh, it's really would be really great to make a record of these interviews that we collected over those three years, really important period in Ukraine's history, to make sure that they would be available. As a historian, I'm really aware how important primary sources are. And we live in a world of information overload and everything's available on the internet, but we sometimes lose sight of what was happening yesterday, last week, last year, five years ago. And putting together these interviews in a book format has made sure that they will remain a source for future historians, uh, for historians today, for people who are interested in Ukraine. And the value of these interviews, in my opinion, is that it doesn't just capture what was happening, it captures what people were thinking at the time the events were happening. And that is the part that often gets lost, because we can do a Google search and find out when the NATO summit was or various other events. But what people were talking about at the time that these events were happening, this is what's captured in these interviews.
0: Mm-hmm. Could could you introduce for our listeners what Hromatsky Radio is? What what are its origins? Can you compare it with other forms of public radio? Okay.
1: Uh, Hromatsky Ratio is a grassroots project that started in the summer of 2013. So this is before the Euromaidan events. And again, this is something that many of us have forgotten. During the presidency of Viktor Yanukovych, Ukraine was subjected to intense censorship. And journalists were really frustrated. These are like quality journalists because they were unable to work professionally in the existing media. And so in the summer of 2013, a number of these grassroots projects just sort of appeared. Uh, Horomatsky Television, Horomatsky Radio, and, and a number of others. And these were just groups of journalists who got together and decided to create their own media outlet where they could report on events of the day objectively without being told what they couldn't say either by their owners or being censored by the state. So a handful of people got together and they started creating podcasts like yourself and initially they just put them up on SoundCloud and then the Euromaidan exploded and suddenly they became really hot. It's very similar to Romantika Television that this was this huge story and what uh, happened with Rumanesca Radio is a commercial music radio station reached out to Andrei yeah. Kulikov, who was the chairperson of the project, and said, "You guys, we, you guys, need to be on the air. So we're going to give you some of our airtime so that you can put the news on the radio. Because remember, radio." often is underappreciated as the media source because yes. we're all used to the internet and uh, social media. But if you think of how a lot of people get information, it is still through the radio. And if you think to the Maidan period or any revolution, you've got a lot of people in their cars, their driving places, taxi drivers yeah. uh, moving around. And so they've got the radio switched on and that's where they're hearing information or people who are, you know, working at home and they I mean, this is what I do. I've got CBC on constantly and on the hour I hear what the top headlines are. So suddenly they got airtime on this commercial music station. And then after the, the uh, protests were successful and the Yanukovych regime was toppled, they were offered airtime on the state radio channel which became the public broadcaster. Yeah. So they re- they suddenly were able to broadcast to the whole country. So that's Romatsky Radio. And they have maintained their editorial independence and their high professional standards. And in my opinion, they're one of the top media outlets in Ukraine because they are self-governed. And their only uh, editorial criteria are the ones they have set for themselves. And Andriy Kulikov is a BBC-trained journalist, and they've got a really good team of journalists who produce really quality information. So that's the people that I was listening to, and a bunch of them are my friends. And um, when the Euromaidan started, they reached out to me and said, could you do some stuff for us in English? Uh, to reach an international audience. So I did a series of little podcasts for them, and that's that book that you referred to, The Ukraines You've Done. And again, I was thinking, oh, I did these podcasts, but who knows what what will happen to them because they were all posted online. But again, online things disappear. So I put them together and published them in this open access uh, ebook, which is still available, so you can still listen to those. And then um, the project became... Uh, more, oh, I don't want to say mature, but, you know, they it stopped being just a few people doing podcasts. It became a serious project with an office and regular programming on air and so on. And they th- were thinking to continue their English language stuff. And it was a combination of my idea, their idea. And this project came up to have a weekly Ukrainian uh, English language yeah. show about Ukraine. And so that's yeah. how Ukraine Calling was born.
0: I'm I'm really interested in the origin story. I, I know historians sometimes shy away from those things, but I, I'm really, I would say, impressed by how the book is introduced, because as you say, there are 124 episodes the transcription must have taken a very long time. You have half a million (laughs) words. Um, I can't imagine ever doing that myself. Um, I'm really grateful at NewBooks Network to Marshall Poe and Leanne Wilson. Um, Marshall is really the founder of the network and the, the team of people, even those who are editing and producing podcasts, along with all of my fellow hosts. So to start by doing something like this, um, you know, alone is, is daunting. Um,
1: (laughs) I didn't know how much work it would be, Stephen. I didn't know. (laughs) And then once I started, it was like, okay, well I need some help. And so a lot of people just actually, sorry, I interrupted you, but I I really had no idea how much work it would be. But the thing that was...
0: I guess you assembled the volunteer army. Could you could you talk a bit about that? How how you did that?
1: Well, it sort of happened by itself, and this was like um, what constantly amazed me was um, how I started off, and people just reached out and said, "Do you need some help?" And the first person who reached out is Larissa Jovanco, who stayed with the project from the beginning, uh, right through. Uh, helping me put together the book. And she was living, she used to work at the University of Toronto in the Petrojatsk program on Contemporary Ukraine. So we've known each other for a long time. But in 2016, she was living in London, England. And she started listening to the show online. And she dropped me an email saying, hey, great show. Do you need some help? And I said, yes, please. And she said, well, what do you need help with? And I said, everything. Because at that point, it was just me (laughs) and the sound engineer. And she said, okay, mm-hmm. well, what do you need help with the most? And I said, uh, transcribing. Because as yeah, you said, wow. that takes a lot of time. So she became the first transcriber. So at first it was just her and me, and then she got her son to help. So there were three of us doing this. And throughout the whole history of the show, people, that's exactly what happened. People just stepped up and volunteered. Because the my idea to create this show was that I would get it all started and so I spent the summer of 2016 preparing it and launching it. But in my mind, I was going to start it and then find someone else to, to take over. But that didn't happen. And so uh, August, late August of 2016, I'm getting ready to go back to Western to start teaching in the fall and thinking, oh, my God, my great idea, my great project is going to die. Because I didn't find anybody <laughs> to take over. And I'm sitting in a restaurant having a goodbye dinner with a close friend, and a man called Marcos Lutun walked by. And he waved at us and came over and he said, Oh, what are you looking so sad for? And I said, and I told him this. And he said, I'll do it. I'll I'll host the show. And I was like, Really? And so we sat there and I told him what needed to be done. And so he became the new host from the show, for the show. And when he got really busy in the fall, Bodan Nahilo who had been a guest on the show in the summer and fell in love with Radio and liked the project. He said, Oh, I'll step up. I'll help. Her. And people just kept joining the project and offering to help. And the, uh, oh, ended up, I mean, a lot of students ended up working on the project, my own students, but also other students. Um, I was invited by professor Kordan to give the Mohila lecture at the university of Saskatchewan. This would have been in 2016, I think. Oh, and um, afterwards there's a reception and a student came up who had been at my talk and I'd mentioned this project and she said, oh, do you need some help with that? I'm a journalism student. I'd love to work with you. So another person mm-hmm. joined the team and the team just kind of grew like that. Not everybody stayed with the project for the whole time except what it is. Sure. sure. But uh, yeah. that was the amazing thing that people just kept joining. And the other thing is this was a complete volunteer project. There was no budget. So nobody got paid for
0: anything.
1: anything. And so Mm -hmm. that was the other thing. And people from different countries, different time zones. So putting the podcast together was kind of complicated because the student from Saskatoon, um, Nicole King, she was in Saskatoon, Larissa was in London, England. I was in Ukraine for part of the time. The the recording studio is in Ukraine. Uh, so we were working in different time zones and sending files and, and that sort of thing. So it was kind of a production because with the time difference, yeah. the parts need to get put together. But it all it all worked out. Like we never missed a show. Mm-hmm. So that was-
0: it, 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 seems, it seems very organic, if, if I may say so. And the context, of course, was a very, you know, heady context because it was after Maidan, but in 2016, so before the Trump election. And I guess that leads me in, in, into the next question, which is really about content. If you could introduce the content of the book to our listeners here at New Books Network people who are interested in in ukraine because this is certainly a book about ukraine what was your process of selection did you think i need to interview you know christia freeland i need to interview the the canadian ambassador to ukraine or did it did it happen in in another way where you decided on say cultural programming first
1: well, that's, that's a really good question. The title of the book is It's a Kaleidoscope, and that's what it sort of turned out to be. Um, when I was choosing the theme of the week, what the show was going to be about, I was thinking as a journalist and as a scholar. So it was both news-driven and sort of big-picture-driven. And if you look at the table of contents, and again, this is just a selection of the interviews. There's only 30, 30 years of Ukrainian independence, thirty episodes. Um, but some of them are news-driven. Like the first episode is about NATO's Warsaw Summit in Ukraine, uh, and Ukraine, and that was mm-hmm. that was the story of the week. And then the following week, Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, with then uh, for a. Trade Minister Christy Freeland came to Ukraine to sign Canada-Ukraine Free Trade Agreement. So that became the topic of the week. And then the third episode, uh, a journalist, Pavel Shidemet, was killed. So that became the topic of the week. And then the week after that, there were these massive uh, religious marches in the center of Kyiv. So that became the topic of the week. And then there was no big story. And I thought, hmm. Well, and so I reached out to Brian Whitmore and Oleksii Haran, and we did an episode about the fact that the war was ongoing. And Brian Whitmore, who was then doing another, uh, uh, had started this great podcast, and he actually helped me learn how to do a podcast, uh, his uh, Power Vertical with RFARL, and then it's moved to Washington. Um, And he Mm -hmm. came up with this great quote, which became the title of that episode, uh, is War, the New Normal in Ukraine. And then the following right. week, it was the Olympics in Rio, so that's it was about that. became the topic: the relationship between sports and politics. And I reached out to um, uh, Jairo Nascimento, who is uh, a Ukrainian Brazilian, and so he gave us an interview of you know on the ground and so on. So the topics were often news driven, but when there wasn't a big news story, then we would pick a topic that was you know either culture driven. Or um, uh, yeah. sort of what what new books had appeared or related to history. So there was a series uh, of mm-hmm. uh, reports on um, around Ukraine's uh, the, the coup, the 1991 mm-hmm. coup. So that became the topic of the week, and then Ukrainian independence. And you know, we also tried to do mm-hmm. things like culture and legal issues. Uh, so it was it was sort of events-driven and also thematically driven.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm interested in the fact that you mentioned Brian Whitmore. I I was thinking a lot about um, RFERL, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Um, Maybe that's my closest analogy here to Hromatsuka Radio. I wonder if you would agree with that or if there would be others, let's say CBC or BBC, um, and of course, you know, there are, there's Euromaidan, um, Ukrainian versions of, of, of media and independent media and information as well as disinformation. But I guess my question for you as, as a scholar of journalism and communication would be, if you had in mind a model, let's say, for designing your, um, your, your programming and then making choices from, from that point forward. <laughs> Well I think
1: Krumatsuki Radio is pretty unique because it is a grassroots project that has become very successful. So it doesn't receive any state funding. So like RFERL gets government money, public broadcasters in Canada, the US, Britain, Europe, they all get public like they get public funds. Whereas Hormatzki Radio is entirely mm. self-funded. So in addition to producing quality Product. They are also constantly uh, financially looking for sponsorships. So they do crowdfunding. They're applying for grants. um, They've started doing some advertising, which is you know ethical advertising. They don't take uh, ads from nasty corporations. But so they're always so they're self-funded. So the model the is is different, and that's why they're very interesting and and Mm -hmm. unique. Um, But in terms of the content of what they're trying to produce here the models are you know sort of the gold standard of normative uh, rules of media so objectivity comprehensiveness timeliness Uh, so there Mm -hmm. if you listen to their shows and that's what i was aiming with this is you know no sensationalism no um, uh, unreported you have to verify all the facts and you have to make sure that what you're broadcasting actually is accurate, um, and all of that sort of thing. And just to give you an example once, this was the summer. One summer I was in Ukraine, and um, a historian, well-known Canadian-Ukrainian historian, Oris Subtelny, passed away suddenly. And I learned this news from one of my networks. I can't remember which one it was, but an email came from Toronto, like on one of my lists, saying, you know, sad news, or as Subtelni died? So yeah. I immediately yeah. contacted uh, Kirilo Bucaram, who's the main editor over there at Rumatsky Radio, and I said, here's a news story, you, you can break this because you'll be the first, because it hasn't sure. come to you yep. yet. And he said, okay, Marta, this is very sad news, thanks for bringing this to us, but I need it verified by at least one other source. And I said, Kirilo, uh, this is the Ukrainian Studies Network from the University of Toronto, this totally legit source. And I sent it to him and he said, Marta, I know you, I trust you, but we need another source before we can break the story. And so I got on my internet and this is like late night in Cave, still evening in Toronto, and somebody else, I can't remember who else, got the verification i think it was from the funeral home or something like this that there was actually the death and then i got back to Kittle and he said okay great now we'll run with it and they broke the story and then everybody else picked it up and he was like "Yay, yeah you breaks the story but that's what they're like they they wouldn't like even though they know me they wouldn't run it without checking
0: so marta i wanted to ask you a little bit more about the content of the book and some of the interviews that you conducted, including with historians, and and of course we've mentioned Bohdan Nakhailo, who was the head of Radio Liberty, Radio for Europe, the Ukrainian section. Did you have in mind, um, let's say, a method or an approach to introduce more conversations about Ukraine in this, you know, sort of world post Maidan of, of information and, and disinformation? And, and what, what were those kinds of conversations?
1: Mm, that's a good question. I'm not really sure how to answer that because it was, um, uh, again, I think my brain was working as as a journalist and as a historian. So whenever we were looking at news issues, I always would try to frame it in the bigger context. And uh, preparing for interviews, I always had, you know, a set of questions in mind, but then I would let the interviews sort of unfold as they did and allow these people who I invited to share their expertise. And so very, very often, um, you know, somebody like Sidhi Hulawat, Sidhi Pluhi, or, uh, you know, Dan Dresner, who I interviewed about Trump or any of these scholars, they would sort of just. Bring their expertise, by the way, I don't know how many people realize if you haven't read the interview, uh, Dan Dresner, he is a professor at Tufts University, but he lived in Donetsk. And so that's why I reached out to him, because he knows both Trump and Ukraine um, from an interesting perspective. Um, And also like the people we chose for the interviews, they were experts in their particular field. So um, Olajsia o- 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 ostrowska luta she's the director of the like, Kievsky uh, Arsenal, or Ulyana Suprun, she was then the Minister of yeah. Health. Um, so I love that these interview, people, they, yeah. they came with their expertise, and then they just sort of shared it with us. Um, some of the fun ones were um, Michelle Tereshchenko, who uh, was for a short time the mayor of... Of Oh, my God, I forget the name of the town uh, in, in Sumy. And he is a descendant of um, the Tereshchenkos, who were the big um, magnates in, in Ukraine. And really interesting history just came out through the interview. Because the interview was supposed to be about regional politics, but he also talked about his family history, how they got exiled to France, and what it was like being a Ukrainian, mixing with the Russian... Et- exiles, how they didn't sort of work together. So that was kind of uh, sort of an interesting something that was unexpected. So that often happened that uh, the the topics just sort of the conversations unfolded on their own.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, could, could you talk a little bit about your conceptualization of Ukrainian history as well? I, I know that you said you wanted to go back 30 years, so really 1991, Ukrainian independence. Um, you're doing this at, at the moment in summer 2016 and, and all the way, I think, really up to 2019 with all of these episodes. Did did you want a broader perspective on, on Ukrainian history? And, and here, of course, I have in mind the interviews with Frank Sisson and, and Serhiy Plohi. Um, the Plohi interview is also quite fascinating because he, he's <coughs> talking about... You know, he, he produces a book a year <laughs> and he's talking about um, the sort of the style of, of writing. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you as, as a historian and a journalist um, with, with a world of experience in journalism, how how you conceived of Ukrainian history. Did you want to go, let's say, way back before 1991 um, was. Annexation of Crimea event, sort of central, was Maidan central to your understanding? What what did you do with Ukrainian history in, in, in choosing these um, people to interview on the episodes?
1: Well, my conceptualization of Ukrainian history follows Khrushchevsky. So, traced back to Kiev and Rusyn before that. So, the episode that um, I did with Sidhi Hulovaty and Burdan the Hilo, it's, uh, 25 years of independence, a 1,000 years of history. So that's the way I see Ukrainian history. Uh, and the focus it was quite a lot on the present, but the past was very much part of this whole project, as you very accurately, uh, astutely noted. So, you know, the interview with uh, Timothy Snyder was on the 75th anniversary mm-hmm. of the Bambiniar tragedy. and um, the interview with uh, Ambassador Nestor Gajoski was about 1991 and how Canada became the first Western country to recognize Ukraine's independence. So it stretched. And then when we talked about religion, uh, Professor Frank Sisson and Professor Yerslaw again, they're looking at sort of uh, hundreds of years of history, but focusing it on the present. So the history sort of is woven through And then, of course, the the cultural topics. There were interviews about celebrating Ukrainian Easter. Um, So that draws on traditions and culture. Uh, There was an episode that didn't make it into the book about Christmas traditions um, that also Mm. draws on history and culture.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Were were you interested in in traditional, say, book publishing? I I know there there is one source that's really interesting about that um Ostrovska Lyuta, or let's say the, the U- ukrainian literary landscape um because you know again you're you're from history and political science but but of course developing ukrainian studies and so what were some of those choices did you want to talk to let's say the lviv um publishing community or or from the Kiev book festival or new authors <sighs> Well, what I actually had in mind is
1: that as a Ukraine watcher like yourself, uh, I could see all of the different things going on in Ukraine, not just the war and not just talking about corruption and the economy, that despite the war, there was all these other things going on, like book fairs were happening and people were writing books and creating music and music was a part of the show. Every episode had music, music from Ukraine. So part of the idea was yeah. to sort of showcase Ukraine um, as as a complete society and not exclusively sort of politics and history, but to make it interesting and, and to see what else was going on.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, I guess you know how how did you work the language question? <laughs> I, I, I will sort of put that up in the air. So between Ukrainian, Russian, and, and English, I guess, uh, but. Were the interviews all in English? Were some of them done first in Ukrainian and then translated? Um, I guess this is sort of you know a larger question for transnational diasporas and, and Ukraine um, in representation or as a representative society. Were you choosing people who were Russophone, Ukrainian? That's an excellent and, and question.
1: Um, um, all of things. the interviews were conducted in English, and if you listen to the podcast, because they're still available online, uh, you will hear the the accents of the non-native Ukrainian spe- English speakers. And this was actually a bit of a challenge, because um, what I got feedback from the audience, people who were listening, is they found it easier to listen to native speakers. But I wanted not just native English speakers, but I wanted Ukrainians to also have voice um, on the show. So right. this is another reason why the book, you can read it, um, and that's, you know, on, on the page, the, the, you don't hear the accent, you just absorb the ideas. Um, the only Ukrainian speaker that's in the book that was on the show is um, former Prime Minister uh, Groysman. Because I actually was able to do a really quick interview right. with him, but then I you know, did a voiceover, but that's the only one. Everybody else was mm-hmm. was speaking in English. And some of the episodes, uh, you can hear how difficult it was for them. So, I mean, the example of Pavlo Mamontov, who was this young student who joined up in, fought in the war, got injured, and then became a participant in the Invictus Games, his English isn't very good. <laughs> uh, he really struggled with that interview. But again, I just thought it was really important to have those Ukrainians speaking uh, for themselves rather than, you know, an analyst talking about the Invictus Games.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I worry about that, I guess, in in, you know, sort of the form of representation of let's say educated elites or intelligentsia that you know there's maybe too much focus on um, people who are, are multilingual or let's say cosmopolitan or moving back and forth between Kiev and and other cities and then you know what happens to other voices to have a full kaleidoscope? Um, I think about this really a lot in doing the podcasts because I, I want, to have an adequate representation of, of BIPOC and LGBTQ. And, you know, I think probably in, in my choices, I have 60 to 65% women. Um, and I feature a lot of people who are, have their first books or first monographs. So, you know, this is sort of by way of confession, um, in, in my own way of conceptualizing, not just a country, but maybe a field um, to represent in, in Russian, East European, Eurasian studies. I wonder if if you share that uh, sort of sense of diversity, Um, you know, if if you, in doing these 124 episodes, suddenly realized, aha, I need to talk to someone about public health, or I need to talk to someone about, you know, military occupation, or who has experience in the army. would you mind sort of sharing your thoughts a little bit further? Thank you. That? And I In just uh, choosing. have to say
1: select- uh, you do a wonderful job with this issue of representation. And thank you for being sensitive to it, because I think not everybody is, but it, it's a really important part of both academia and media. It was something I was thinking about always when you know, coming up with the idea for the show and selecting the guests. Uh, But the criteria was always, who's the best person to talk about this? And the next one is, okay, who speaks English and can talk about this? And then who we can get to come into the studio and record the interview. So that would be the criteria. But it was always like, who's the best person for this topic? Uh, Okay. And um, another interview that made it into the book, which is, um, I think, one of the most poignant ones that we did with the show. And this was an interview conducted by Oksana Smirichuk. Um, And this is with um, a a young man who became um, a political prisoner, Hennady Afanasyev. And he's from Crimea. He participated in a protest, got picked up, was tortured. And again, for those of you who might not be following this in detail, uh, they tortured him in, in a prison in Moscow and extracted a false confession implicating Oleg Sentsov, the filmmaker. And that was used to charge Oleg Sentsov as um, a terrorist. And then during the trial, the Afanasyev uh, said, this is a false confession that was extracted under torture, and I completely throw it out, and you cannot use this. Uh, so, then we sentenced him to 25 years in prison, et cetera, et cetera. And then later, he was released as part of one of the prisoner exchanges. And we got him to tell his story um, on our show. And this is an example of somebody whose English wasn't very good, but gave a fabulous interview. And this the text brings across the story in some ways better than the audio but it's also interesting to listen to the voice of the person because you hear the emotion you hear um, you know he's telling you his story of what it was like it's it's a horrific interview because he describes the torture and so there's a warning there so if you're faint of heart don't read this interview but you can
0: yeah no, it it is true, Marta. I, I mean, this is one reason why I I love the form of audio because exactly as you say, it to my mind, it's kind of operatic, and you're flattening people on a page. If you're just reading the transcribed interviews, uh, you I mean, you don't hear the anxiety. You also don't get a personality, um, and I think. In doing something that's raw and, and maybe unfiltered and unedited, especially if you're interviewing someone in, in their third or fourth language, as I imagine you do, there's a very musical quality to this. You, you can hear when their voice is rising. You can hear when um, maybe they don't want to answer the question. <laughs> um, and and I, I actually um, really respect how you did that because, um, again, you know, if you're reading something in Europe, Asia studies or, or, Slavic review or Canadian Slavonic papers, you, you, have very little impression of, you know, what this person is actually um, bringing mm-hmm. other than their, you know, sort of network and, and expertise. Right. Can I interrupt? So can I, can I, interrupt um, I, I wanted you there? to, I wanted to, again, uh, you know, offer you. you a compliment. Thank you for saying that. that.
1: And yeah. the, sure. uh, the interviews, the, the voice recordings, they are still up on the Hodmatsky Radio website. And for each episode that uh, made it into the book, Excellent. there's a link in the actual, like at the beginning of the interview. So so you can see, for example, if you want to hear mm-hmm. Hinadi Afanasyev's interview, you go to page 153 and the link is there. So you can, I don't know with the ebook if you can just click on it, but if you can't, you can just copy mm-hmm. and paste and you can listen to his voice. <laughs> So that is available to the readers as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thank you. And and I appreciate that. So um, I, I wanted to ask you some questions since we're sort of wrapping up um, with the content of the book about the future of Ukrainian journalism and, and how you see this in developing in, in the next few years, perhaps in the 2020s. Um, could Could you give us an idea of, of what you see as promising in new media and and again this is not just a diaspora question but it's a question of, of expertise and knowledge and commentary and extending beyond the world of, of traditional media and book publishing um, do, do you see a future in these you know sort of crowdfunded or self-funded patreon type podcasts? Um, given your experience over these several years in in hosting and trying to put together things (laughs) on on, on what I would call a Uh, shoestring budget? uh,
1: Well, um, Ukraine's media needs to be looked at in the larger global context because what's happening in Ukraine's media is very similar to what's happening in media everywhere else. Uh, I mean, democratic countries, we're not talking about China or Russia... But the issue of uh, ownership, of editorial content, of financing, of uh, dissemination, of um, distortion, of misinformation, these are issues that Ukrainian journalists face, that Ukrainian media faces, but these are issues that journalists in the United States and Canada and everywhere face. So the availability of good quality Information through journalism is something that, in my opinion, is under threat globally. And that's why I think that these types of initiatives are extremely valuable because there are people in the United States, like yourself, who are doing these podcasts because it's important. And Romatzki Radio, they believe in the values of objective journalism and so they're working towards that goal. Uh, The reality, though, is that the large media corporations are owned by businessmen, whether it's Ukrainian businessmen or other business, American businessmen or Australian businessmen, and their motivation is not public service. Their motivation is profit and shaping public opinion. So the quality of information in media everywhere is under threat. Um, And I think it's really just the public broadcasters in the countries Mm -hmm. where it exists that continue to be motivated by public service, that their motivation is to inform society so that people can make informed decisions, not to entertain them, not to distract them. Uh, not to get them to buy things because of the advertising so and social media is um, is yeah. another they their corporations their goal is not to provide accurate information to have an informed citizenry their goal is to make money
0: yeah i I wonder um, if you could say something about the the um, you know so oligarchic scene. Um, in, in, in Ukrainian politics, I, I, every journalist that I've met actually shares that exact same sentiment, you know, how, e- how easily a, a channel can be bought, how easy a person can be bought in, in the world of crony capitalism. And, you know, I, I guess I, I would say reading the, the great interview that you did with, with Olga Anouch um, about women in Ukrainian parliament um, and the increasing number of, of Ukrainian women politicians I would ask you, you know, how actually to get an objective and transparent message across. Um this is this is such a central question, I, I think, in an age when you know journalists are, are are threatened. Um do you do you think about this, Marta? I mean, especially you know in the world of, of the Ukrainian, let's say, parliamentary scene or political scene, how how you can get those voices framed and 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 platformed
1: well i Um, think about this all the time what is your what is your way of doing (laughs) that and again sort of this this project ukraine calling and getting the book that was you know coming out of that that there needs to be you know these sort of objective uh, voices out there and recorded for posterity um the the situation in ukraine's media is uh constantly in flux there are initiatives by the current Zelensky government, uh, presidency and in his party to uh, rein in the oligarchs. And the oligarchs are the ones who own the major media corporations. So um, it will be interesting to see how that process uh, unfolds. But um, I think that Often when we look at Ukraine's media, which is my subject of study, um, the, uh, the analytical lens is a little bit too narrow because if we look at media in the United States or Canada, uh, it's also owned by large corporations that pressure governments to deregulate so that they can then create monopolies and control editorial content so this is something that ukraine learned or ukrainian businessmen learned from their colleagues in the west they didn't invent this uh the challenge is sort of state media relations because there's this basic principle of freedom of speech right so when it was it Twitter or Facebook deplatformed Trump, there was this big outcry that this corporation is in, in sort of trampling on free speech. But in the era of fake news and information warfare, there's a need to think about these issues in a more nuanced way. Because if somebody is deliberately putting out disinformation through whichever media channels, and hiding behind, you know, this is free speech, uh, that right. is detrimental to society. So right. somebody has mm-hmm. to take responsibility to regulate that. Mm-hmm. And those are government responsibilities because media corporations mm-hmm. will not do mm-hmm. that.
0: Usually. Yeah. I, that. Yeah. I mean, the debate Absolutely. going on right now over Facebook in the United States is, is really centered around that and and i I would add, you know, just as an observer who's been doing his podcast since 2019, I'm seeing so many people leaving Facebook. They might maintain the platform, but leaving Facebook for for public facing Twitter um, and especially since Trump has you know been vanquished out of the Twitter universe, it seems to be more public facing and and offer, something that that seems a bit more civic, although it it, it has some problems there too. Um and, and I'm I'm really interested in in this as someone who who's now you know resorting mainly to Twitter as as an outreach platform um and, and yet seeing other you know platforms develop like like Instagram um So I I think, you know, this is a conversation to be continued in in Canada and in North America and in in Ukraine. And I really appreciate um, your contribution to that. so, um, I, wanted, I wanted to say, since we're winding down, Marta, if you could perhaps recommend other books to read for our listeners here on a New Books Network. And if you wouldn't mind also talking about your books current to read. I have a very long
1: story. summer reading list, but I would like to plug a series, the Ukrainian Voices series, which is a new book series um, that started by Andreas Umland and published by Ibidim. And this yeah. is kind of a new, kind of a book series because it is, as as the title suggests, uh, Ukrainian voices. A book that's on top of my reading list is uh, number six, I think, in the series. No, I'm number six. Uh, one of the early books by Oleksandr Shcherban, who is a former diplomat, who wrote a book called Ukraine versus Darkness: Undiplomatic Thoughts. So this is, uh, he was a speechwriter, um, and he worked in Bonn, Berlin, Washington, Vienna, and he's giving us the kind of the inside view on this. Um, another one of my favorite b- books on my list is by Mikwal Ariyapchuk, At the Fence mm-hmm. of Metternich's Garden. And this is also part of the series. Uh, a book that I can't wait to read is by <laughs> He Kjelcik. He's publishing... Um, on myths, uh, Soviet myths, and how they affect Ukraine today. Um, I could keep going because there's a lot of lists, but I don't want to offend any of my uh, other friends who've written interesting. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, a book that I have read in Ukrainian but wanted to plug is um, the English translation of um, of Stanislav Aseyev's book on um, his experience in a prison in uh, the occupied territory of Donetsk, called "Isolation," uh, he wow. was a blogger. Who it. uh, it's oh. just come out. Um, it I was published in Ukrainian initially, uh, and just translated by Harvard University Press. It's um, he was he was a blogger who stayed in occupied Donetsk and continued writing um, from there about what life was like. You know, behind enemy lines as it were and then he got captured uh, charged with treason, thrown into prison in this infamous isolation prison where they torture people in horrific ways. He was then also released in a prisoner exchange and he published what life is like in this notorious prison and it's her, her raising um, okay. worth reading and it's just appeared in English okay. so that's um, something to put on other people's reading lists. What am I working on? Where do I start? I have this of the, the big that uh, I'm partially complete. <laughs> uh, my favorite summer project is I want to finish this uh, story about a young volunteer called Sashko, who in the summer of 2014, uh, went and joined a volunteer battalion, I happened to meet him by chance uh, during the oath swearing ceremony outside of Kiev. And I stayed in touch with him through his brother. So he he was in the Battalion Donbass. And uh, I stayed in touch with his brother, so I got updates on what he was up to for a whole year. And um, and then uh, he left the battalion went back home got married and so on and so i'm now writing up his biography and it's two-thirds written but um, (laughs) so hopefully this summer i'll finish that project that's exciting and um i've (laughs) got a couple of other little things um i did a survey Hmm. of my media and politics course when the pandemic started what media sources they were using and why and what i thought is that many of them switched to what's called traditional or conventional media sources because they wanted accurate information so even though they were all using social media before when the pandemic started they switched to CBC and that sort of thing so I need to finish writing that up and I've got a big project that I've been working on for a bunch of years but that's going to have to wait till my sabbatical and that's looking at the relationship between media and memory and focusing on world war ii representations of displaced people so this is bringing together my early work my doctorate on world war ii refugees and my recent work on media and bringing memory into it so that's
0: Ugh. and I'll stop there cuz yeah. I'm sort of yeah that's great that's awesome Martha I love the I love the fact that you're coming back to a project that you started what maybe 20 30 years ago I don't know how long it was I wish I, I wish I could do the same I have I have you know a lot of energy but not enough time and I guess that's you know the way that we could end as co-podcasters um we, we just need more time and, and sometimes, you know, more people and more bodies to help us out in what we're doing as part of public service. Um, so I commend you and I congratulate you on, on this book, which um, is called Ukraine Calling, a Kaleidoscope from Hromatsky Radio 2016 to 2019, published by Columbia University Press and Ibidem in 2021. We have been speaking with Professor Marta Dichok, and I really appreciate you spending uh, time with us here um, today on, on the podcast on New Books Network. Thank you so much, Marta, for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me, and I hope you enjoy the book. And click on the link so you can actually hear the shows.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. And thanks to all of our listeners. Again, I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here on New Books Network. Until next time.